Good morning. I hope that you will um, see Sundays in Lent as an opportunity to get a fresh start um, every, every week. I was thinking about this earlier during the confession. Travis and I kind of have this joke. He told me before he was a deacon and I would lead the confession time, he said he could always tell what kind of week I'd had by how quickly I transitioned to the invitation to confession to the corporate confession. <laughs> if I took a long time, it meant it had been a rough week. Um, but this morning he was leading and he went too fast and I was still working through some things. Um, Sundays are a day in which we remember that Christ is risen from the dead, that he con has conquered sin and evil in our lives, and that he is doing a work in our souls of redemption, of renewal as human beings. He's renewing us in his image and in his likeness as we gaze on him into his face. So Psalm uh, 27 um, one of the, my favorite verses in it says, You have said, seek my face. And my heart says, your face, Lord, do I seek. This is the goal of the Christian life, that our hearts would respond to the Lord with, yes, amen. My heart says to you, your face, do I seek. So on Sundays in Lent, I hope that you'll see it not as an opportunity um, to, to condemn you. You failed so much this week. More, as much as, Lord, you are constantly willing to show me mercy and to renew me over and over and over again. And so every week, every, every day, every minute even, the Lord is willing to give you a fresh start in relationship to him. And if you're not a Christian, this is open to you too. You can have a completely fresh start. Uh, this morning, I, I think that this is the focus of the passages, the way that they hold together. At, at the end of the Philippians passage, Paul says to his brothers and sisters in this city called Philippi, they're facing extreme persecution and pressure, and he says, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. And this is the end of Psalm 27, wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage, wait for the Lord. It, it's a really consistent theme. And this is what the passages, I think, as they coalesce the gospel as well, it's to draw us closer in our trust in Jesus as our King and as our Lord. Um, what I'm going to do is I want to, I want to tell you a story about this movie I saw recently, and then I'm going to walk through our passage in Luke, sort of verse by verse, not every single one, but a lot of it, and then we're going to close with Psalm 27 again. So, I've been talking to some of you about this movie I saw recently, and I just can't stop talking about it, so you're going to have to listen to me some more if you've already heard about this. I, I really want to encourage you to watch it during Lent. Some of you, I know, are going to come to me and tell me how much you didn't like it, and I'm willing to accept that because others of you are going to love it. Um, so it, it's a really Lenten movie. It is. Uh, and it's long, so you might need to break it up into a couple of nights, a few nights. <laughs> and the but the movie's called A Hidden Life. How many of you have seen this? Anybody? Thomas? Fran? You, good, right? Thomas is slowly shaking his head. He's hesitant. <laughs> okay, so it, it's based on the story of a guy named Franz Jägerstadter. Am I saying this right, Fran? Jägerstadter. 
Franz and his family lived in this small village in northern Austria during World War II. It's, it's based on a, a true story. The, the scenery itself is worth the movie. It's breathtaking. It's really incredible. But the story's about uh, how Germany takes over Austria during this period, and people in the village begin in, be, are, are beginning to show devotion to Hitler. So as you pass by, just walking through the village, people will raise their arm and say, Hail Hitler. And then there's this requirement for men in the village to participate in the German army. They're called up. And to participate in the German army meant that you had to, first thing, swear allegiance to Hitler. So everyone in Franz's village goes along with this because they recognize the danger in resisting. That it would probably cost them their life. But Franz, who's actually, he's married and he has three young daughters. He has reservations about the war, and he believes that swearing allegiance to Hitler would be paramount to idolatry. And so he slowly, the movie conveys it, he's not a rabble-rouser, he just slowly, steadily is resisting. This doesn't seem right. Something about this does not seem right. And one of the things in the story that's fascinating to me, and I think ties into our scriptures this morning, is the way people respond in the village to Franz, to Franz resistance. So it's this really small, interdependent agricultural village. So as they're showing, when they're growing hay in the village, everybody comes together and works together to produce the hay. And Franz is this very able-bodied man. And so he's respected as a central part of the community. He and his wife are key producers within the community of things that they need. But as they choose this, what I'm going to call a narrow path of resistance, they begin to be ostracized by their neighbors and friends in really awful ways. They're ignored and ridiculed in the streets, spit on. And even Franz's mother, his mother turns against his wife, Blaming her and telling her that Franz was never as radical and devoted before he met her. One critic describes the movie in one review as achingly beautiful. And it's a good description. So Franz is eventually arrested for his resistance. They try to wear him down in prison. They give him repeated opportunities to swear allegiance but he refuses. Actually, the length of the movie is part of the message. It's really worth enduring it because this is what he's experiencing in his time in prison is the need to endure, to consistently resist. So they give him all these opportunities to swear allegiance, but he refuses. They try to make it into this small thing. All you have to do is sign here. And eventually he's executed. Pope Benedict um, who's the Pope Emeritus now. He was born close to Franz's village. And so he declared Franz a saint of the Catholic Church in 2007. And this has made his story much more known to the church. And at the end of the film, you're shown this quote. For the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts. So this is what people are telling Franz throughout. Nobody's going to hear about you. You're not going to make any difference. What's the point? 
The growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts. And things, the reason that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number of people who lived a faithfully hidden life and they rest in unvisited tombs. Now the title of the film, A Hidden Life, also comes from a passage in Paul's letter to the Colossians. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ. Your life is hidden with Christ. That's where your real life is. Now, how does this movie connect with our scriptures? Well, the reason that Franz was able to live the life he did and found meaning in it was because he followed Jesus, who also had people turn against him and eventually murder him. If you watch the movie, I'd encourage you to pay attention to the number of times you see crucifixes and other Christian symbolism in Franz's home. It's a very simple home. They're agricultural family. But there's these simple displays throughout their home of imagery of the Christian faith. His imagination was shaped by the way of Christ. He was actually a sexton in his local church. We need to be just as intentional, I think, with our homes <laughs> to, to surround ourselves with words and images that bend our imaginations toward the way of Jesus. They aren't magic, but they help us. They help shape our hearts in small, subtle ways. Now, I'm going to come back to this story of Franz in a few minutes when I close. But again, I want to walk us through our gospel passage in Luke chapter 13. If you have a Bible, open it to Luke, the gospel of Luke chapter 13. Verse 22. So the season of Lent that we are in focuses on two main events in the life of Jesus. One is Jesus' wilderness temptation. Another way to describe Jesus' wilderness experience is his resistance. His own resistance. Like Franz, resistance. And so that, that's the first main event in Jesus' life that we focus on in Lent, and that's what Scott preached on last week. The second event is a, a larger period in Jesus' life. It's his journey to Jerusalem. So much of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem takes up the rest of the Gospel of Luke. So from starting in Luke chapter 9 to Luke chapter 22, we're moving toward Jerusalem. It's that much time that Luke gives just to this journey. So that's where we are today. Jesus knew that his life was going to serve, it was serving a divine purpose, that he was called to serve a divine plan. And so at this point in his life, he's making his way to Jerusalem to fulfill God's purposes, which are for him to lay down his life. And on the way, he's teaching, and he's telling stories of God's kingdom. So here in Luke 13, he's asked a question. This is um, verse 22. Lord, will those who are saved be few? That's a good conversation starter, isn't it? Lord, it's just going to be a small number who are saved, right? Just a few? I don't like many people, so just a few, huh? This, uh, this is odd to us, but it was actually a common question that people asked in that world. Actually, there were Jewish rabbis who would say that the, God made the world for many people, but only for a few to be saved. So this was normal discourse for them. 
But I, I want you to notice the way that the question is posed. Will those who are saved be few? Where's the burden of responsibility here in the way that the question is asked? It's solely on God. <laughs> I mean, the, the, uh, the other side of it would be, how many people are you going to destroy, God? You're going to destroy a lot of people, right? It's as if humans carry no responsibility before God. None. And the way Jesus answers turns the focus and the responsibility from God to people. Listen to what Jesus says in response. This is verse 24. Strive to enter through the narrow door. Strive to enter through the narrow door. Now the word for strive is agonizomai. Everybody say that fast. Agonizomai. Okay. Can you guess what English word we get from that Greek word? Agonize. It means to fight and to struggle. Strive to enter through the narrow door. Now, I, I agree, and I believe the Bible agrees with what Travis was saying earlier. Our salvation is not dependent on us. It is by grace through the Lord Jesus Christ and His giving of His life for our sins. But Jesus is saying, if you want to be saved, you will act like it. If you want to be saved, you will act like it. You'll make some effort. Your life will resemble it in some way. Your life will take a shape in which you want to be saved by God. So then Jesus uses a story to illustrate the problem that's going on here in the background. So he says that a master has left his door open to people to come in and enjoy a feast is basically what Jesus is saying. He, he's provided a banquet that people can come into. But there comes a time in which the door has to be closed. The banquet can't be open just forever. And after he closes the door, people still come knocking. They're asking to come in. But the master says he doesn't recognize them. And they tell him, we've eaten with you and you taught in our streets. But the master says, I still don't, I don't know where you come from. I don't know who you are. And there co then comes the real sting from the master. Depart from me, you workers of evil. Now, behind this story are other events that have happened in the Gospel of Luke. So when you read this story, I know growing up, sitting in the church, I would hear a passage like this read and hope that by the end of the sermon, I was going to feel really relieved that the preacher was going to somehow make it sound like it wasn't as bad as it really sounded like it was. What's going on here is that there are other events that have already happened in the Gospel of Luke that are playing into what Jesus says. There are Pharisees who have invited Jesus over for dinner. Sure, he's had dinner with them. But the whole time that they had Jesus in their homes, they're judging him. Because he relaxes the rules that they see to be important. Because he shows mercy where they would rather him not show mercy. Yeah, sure, he has taught in their streets. 
But the whole time, they've been judging him for his teaching instead of submitting to it, repenting. People have done all these things, but they don't really respect Jesus. They refuse to repent of the sin in their own lives. So the, the story is meant to illustrate that there's going to come a time when it's too late to repent. There will come a time when it is too late for humans to repent of their sins. Their willingness and their refusal to walk away from Jesus. And if you haven't repented, Jesus goes on to say, you will be utterly grieved. He says, outside there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I've always took that to mean that God was somehow torturing people outside, but that's not what it says. They're grieved. They're gnashing their own teeth because they realize they refused to repent. If you refuse to repent of your sin, there will come a day when it will grieve you to the depth of your being. So Jesus closes the story by emphasizing that God's kingdom is actually open to people everywhere. People will come from east and west. This is verse 29. People will come from east and west and from north and south, and they'll recline at table in the kingdom of God. What's funny to me is this doesn't sound like just a few people. Remember, this started with, will only a few people be saved? It doesn't sound like just a few people. People are going to be coming from everywhere. But to enter in, to really enjoy the feast that Jesus offers, you have to repent. Listen, this isn't about Jesus being mean. It's not. It's that if you really want to enjoy the benefits of a relationship with Jesus, the first thing you have to do is acknowledge that you need Him. That you're not good enough on your own. So this is part of what the season of Lent is all about. It's about making sure that you're not trusting your life to anything else besides Jesus. That you're not trusting your life to money, to your own goodness, to your family, but only to Jesus. You see, this is what the Pharisees were doing. They were entrusting that their connection to the family of Israel would be enough to get them into the kingdom of God. That their lineage, that all the things associated with their past would be enough. Surely God will count that as for something. But the whole time they refuse to acknowledge Jesus. So this is a real question for us in the Lenten season. Are we entrusting our lives to anything besides Jesus for our whole well-being? For our life with God forever? Now while Jesus is finishing up this conversation. Some Pharisees approach him and they tell him he needs to leave in a hurry because Herod wants to kill him. All right, now, we don't usually trust Pharisees in the Gospels. We don't usually. But Herod has already killed John the Baptist. In this case, we can trust them. Herod probably wanted to kill Jesus. Now, Jesus isn't deterred. And this, this has to be one of the coolest statements Jesus makes. He calls Herod a fox. You go tell that fox. He's saying that Herod is basically just a varmint in God's field. <laughs> Herod's threat lacks force for Jesus because his purposes are contrary to God's purposes. 
This reminds me of Psalm 27, verse 1. The Lord is my salvation, my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Listen, I don't know the things that might bring you fear in your life, but I guarantee you there are things that bring you fear. And there is nothing that you need to fear because the Lord is the one who holds your life. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. You need not fear. And Lent is a time to repent of your fears and to turn to the Lord. So Jesus, he knows that Herod isn't somebody he should fear because he knows he has to die in Jerusalem. The Jerusalem is the site of God's temple, the site of God's purposes. And so he is going to give his life there. And the passage closes on an image. So Jesus, he expresses his own grief at the way things are playing out. You know, it may be according to God's purposes that Jesus is going to die, but that doesn't mean that God always wanted things this way. Those are different things. God did not want the world to be in the pain that it's in. But because it is, he is willing to give his son. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. This is a cry of grief. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Jerusalem has repeatedly turned against people who told her things she didn't want to hear. She really has killed them. She silenced those voices and thought she wouldn't have to deal with them any longer. Now they're going to try to silence Jesus too. Now the image that Jesus gives is of a hen who seeks to gather chicks for safety, but they keep running away, flitting and flying away. And any farmer would have known this image. It's broadly known that if there is a barn fire, in the aftermath, a hen can be found scorched while chicks are alive underneath her. She is willing to give her life for the sake of her chicks. And this is what Jesus wants to do. Jesus wants to gather the people of Israel under him to absorb all the darkness and evil of the cross on himself and for them to follow in his way of peace and self-sacrifice. But they insist on having their own way. And what it's going to lead to, and the reason Jesus is saying, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, is that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed because they insist on their own way. And this is what Jesus invites us to. The promises that he offers to Jerusalem. I want to gather you under my wings and I want to cover you. I want to protect you from the evil of the world and the evil of your own life. He offers us the same promise. I'm going to die. I'm going to take it on myself. And I'm going to cover you. That's what Jesus does on the cross. He covers us with himself. And he takes and absorbs all the evil and darkness of the world to extend his mercy and love and forgiveness to us. So that the, the, the really, really concrete wrath that was experienced in Jerusalem, they reap the repercussions of their own 
folly of resistance to God. And we in our own lives, if we resist God, can reap consequences of our own folly that Jesus would seek to save us from. So Jesus actually lives out the prayers of Psalm 27, which we prayed together. When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. They try to eat up Jesus' flesh, but in the end, they are the ones who stumble and fall. This is what's cool is that Franz, Jaeger's daughter, the same thing is true for him. They seek to eat up his flesh, but they're the ones in the end who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Both Franz and Jesus experienced forsakenness, and this is what is prayed in Psalm 27, for my father and my mother have forsaken me but the Lord will take me in. So the last letter that Franz Jägerstadter wrote the night before he would be executed, he said there, that true freedom is freedom of the will and freedom in God. And he said that um, there are people who are accusing him of being unwise because he's forsaking his wife and his family. And he says, why should having a wife and family free me from doing honor to God? And Pope Benedict, when he spoke about Hans, said, Not everyone is called to martyrdom by bloodshed. And this is for us. There is a non-bloody martyrdom which is equally significant and to which all other Christians are called. A silent and heroic witness of so many Christians who live the gospel without compromise doing their duty and dedicating themselves generously to the service of the poor. This martyrdom of ordinary life constitutes a particularly important witness in the secularized society of our time. It is the peaceful battle of love, which every Christian must fight without flagging, the race to spread the gospel that involves us until our death. So I think what these things ask of us is what we said at the beginning from Psalm 27. You have said, seek my face. That is what God says to you and to your heart. Seek my face in the face of Jesus Christ. The question is, does your heart respond with impulse and respond? Your face, Lord, do I seek? Is that the natural impulse and response of your heart? Your face, Lord, do I seek. That's what we're trying to do in Lent. By God's grace and by the love of God in Jesus Christ, who is the one who gives himself for the chicks. He is that hen. By his grace, we're repenting of our sins and asking that our heart's natural impulse would say, your face, God, do I seek. Amen.